You can take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2. Uh, we don't do this a lot down in the basement, but I think it's just calls right. Can you guys thank the team that led us in uh, worship today? And yeah, that'd be... Obviously, the focus was on the Lord, but thank you, Nate, and everybody else that helped out. That was, that was tremendous. It's, it's cool to have more people up there and uh, such great songs about the truth of our Savior. We'll be in uh, Romans today, the book of Romans, if you... Uh, have not turned there already. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, make sure you look on the person next to you. Uh, so that make sure you also uh, have a copy of God's Word. I know why you're here as a high school student. Uh, well, maybe perhaps you're here because your parents made you come. But one of the things I love about each week is that this is the time where we get to just remember reality. Remember what life is about. And I know there's so much entertainment and so many different things calling for your attention. It's always good to spend time in God's Word just to remember, yeah, these are the eternal truths. Uh, This is what real life actually looks like. And today I think Romans chapter 2 will help us understand that. As a kid, you learned that there are good guys and bad guys. There are good guys and they're bad guys. You saw this in the stories that you read, the movies that you watched, the games that you played, right? You played a game on the playground called Cops and Robbers. Good guys, bad guys. Or in the pool, there were sharks and minnows. Sorry, little minnows out there, right? Sharks and minnows. Good guys, bad guys. Uh, while you were watching movies, there was good guys and bad guys. There was Peter Pan, and then there was Captain Hook, right? Some of you didn't know that. Ben didn't know that. But that's okay. You can help Ben out later. They didn't watch that movie in Pennsylvania. Um, you've, you've got, you've got fr- out in public, like you have your friends and family, good guys, and then there are strangers, bad guys. Got to watch out for strangers. All of life is like that. And as you get older, that doesn't really ever change. There's still good guys and bad guys in just like more mature form. So your sports teams, the team that you root for, they're the good guys. The, the rival, bad guys. We don't like the Giants. In my house, we don't like Notre Dame or the Chargers. Those are bad guys. In politics, what is politics? It's just you reenacting it in a mature, more mature way. Good guys and bad guys, right? There's good guys on the screen. We root for their color. Bad guys, we root against them. You know, there's other forms of it as you get older. People who drive trucks versus people who drive Priuses. Good guys, bad guys. No offense if you drive a Prius. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So we have this sort of divided. And the same can also happen with religion. Religion, there are the good people that go to church. There are the bad people who don't go to church. Or there's the good people who are kind of spiritual but not too zealous and the bad people who are too over the top. It divides into good guy and bad guy. It's what we do. But my question that's, that's, that, uh, that I think is important for us to consider is, in that divide, are you always on the side of the good guys? I mean, think about that. Every single time that we have this division of here's what's good, here's what's bad, do you notice you always end up putting yourself on the good side of the divide, on the right side, on the more ethical or the more enlightened or the more informed, that you put yourself on the side that's better to be on against the enemies that are sort of the bad side? And if so, is that the right thing to do? Is that really how we ought to think about life? Is that really how we ought to think about religion? 
that we are the good guys and there are the bad guys out there. Because I think what's going to happen this morning is in Romans chapter 2, Paul's going to challenge your assumption of that. He's going to challenge your thinking on how good you really are. We're going to read Romans chapter 2, and as we read through Romans chapter 2, I just want you to think about who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Paul is unfolding an argument. Something you need to know about Romans is no sentence is just randomly placed. There are no fortune cookies just wedged in there. There's an argument that Paul's developing. It's about five paragraphs this morning, and I want you to see, if you can, while we read through it, see if you can trace Paul's argument. See if you can understand his main thrust, his main point. If you could boil down what Paul is saying into one sentence, what is that? Let's take a look and see if we can understand it in Romans chapter 2. Word of God reads, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard heart, and sorry, hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, and an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. 
For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now for circumcision, indeed, is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is circumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is God's very word. Let's pray together before we look at it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have to gather today. Lord, there is no more important question that we consider than whether or not we know you, whether or not we're saved, whether or not we've been rescued from the wrath of God. Lord, I pray this morning that we would have clarity on why we think we're going to heaven. And Lord, I I pray this morning that some here who do not know you, uh, that you would help them see the glory of your son and the good news of the gospel. Uh, The weightiness of Romans 2 gets us ready for the good news of Jesus Christ. And so Lord, I pray that you'd be honored in our time. I pray that we'd worship you and praise you rightly. I pray that as we look at the gospel today, we'd leave here with a newfound boldness and zeal and love for you and a desire to share the good news. Bless this time now, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. Book of Romans, we know, is Paul's description of the gospel. He wants to go to Rome to preach the message of the gospel. And and we know that the gospel is this message of salvation. In fact, in Romans 1, verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is, in this message uh, to the Romans, it is the message of salvation. It is the good news that if you believe this news, you can be rescued, uh, and anyone can be rescued. So in one sense, today's a great day to come, even if you've never been here with us before, because this is like the basic message of Christianity. It's the basic message of how you can be saved and be made right with the God who created you, the God with whom you'll meet one day after you die. And in the book of Romans, what Paul is doing over these chapters, really from the second half of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11, is he's laying out this argument for what the gospel is. It's, it's a logical book that flows one theme to the next to the next. And sometimes the arguments get more complex, but big picture, it really makes sense. And in Romans chapter 2, what you'll see is that Paul is having a sort of fake argument If you want to have a fancy word, you could call it a diatribe. It's a literary term. But really what you want to see is is Paul is making his point through a fake argument about how someone gets saved and how somebody avoids the wrath of God. Now, in order to understand this, here's what I'm going to help you now. I'm going to give you the main point. Here's Paul's main point, and then we're going to see how he defends it the whole time. Here's, Here's the main thing of what he's trying to say. Ready? All people are under judgment. All people are under condemnation. All people rightly face the wrath 
of God for their sin. Everyone without distinction, every single type of person, no matter their background, all are guilty. That's the point Paul's making. It's the point he's making from chapter 1 through the first half of chapter 3. Let me show that to you. So last week we looked at a really big text. Uh, ben, actually two weeks ago, we looked at Romans 1, 18 through 32. And if you look at 1, 18, we read about the wrath of God is revealed. We read that God is a God of wrath. God is furious with sin. So angry that he will judge sin and destroy sinners forever for their rebellion against him. And we, as we looked at that passage, Ben did a great job of showing why the wrath of God wasn't just God flying off the handle. But sinners deserve wrath because of how evil they are. We read about how they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Uh, we learned how they did not worship God. Verse 21 says, they, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Right? So instead of seeing the God who created everything and saying he deserves all praise, they said, well, the things he made deserves all praise. Or the relationships I have deserve the most honor. Or I make myself the center, center of the universe. And so because of that, they deserve punishment. They deserve the judgment of God. And we see the judgment of God unfold in the way that they exchange God's plan for marriage for homosexual marriage. They exchange God's commandments for obedience for a life of lawlessness. In fact, what Ben read last time, take a look at verse 28 of chapter 1. It says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's the unbelieving world. They are devoted to their sin. They walk in rebellion against God personally, not just his code. And because of that, they are rightfully under the wrath of God. And if you were reading just Romans 1, 18 to 32, and I know this happened last week or two weeks ago when we looked at this, I know some of you are thinking, yeah, that is what the unbelieving world's like. Yeah, they are so wicked. Yeah, they, though it's sad because I know some of them, they absolutely deserve the wrath of God. And what Paul does in chapter 2 is he says, so do you. You also deserve the wrath of God. You think just because you're not like those people in the world, you think because you don't hold to the ethics that they hold to, that you are somehow free? No, you are also under the judgment of God. You also deserve punishment because you are sinful just the same way that they are sinful. I already said the main point today is that all are under judgment all are under sin, or sorry, all, all are under condemnation. And in Romans 2, you could say this, all are under judgment, especially here, religious people. Paul's focus here is on religious people. You notice, as we went through this section, there's two sorts of people Paul's mentioning. He mentions the Jew and the Greek, verse 9. And again, in verses 12 through 16, he mentions the Gentiles. And then later, he mentions the Jews, which is funny because Romans 1, 16, 17, it talks about power of God to all who believe, to the Jew and to the Greek. 
Now, what do we mean by Jew or Greek? Some of you might know that you're Jewish. Some of you might know that you're Greek background. But what's Paul talking about here? When he says Jew and Greek, he's talking about very religious people and very irreligious people. The Greeks, the Gentiles, the the non-Jews believed in a multitude of gods. They were polytheists. They thought there were all sorts of gods in the world. And so there was a God that worshiped all the time. Gods worship all sorts of feasts. They were known for sin. They were known for revelry. They were known for immorality. But the Jews, I mean, they were known as like the, the holier than thou's, right? They're, they're kind of, by society, would have been seen as more stuffy, boring, but you couldn't accuse them of being bad. You just knew that they were boring. What Paul is saying is take the most irreligious people and take the most religious people and all of them are condemned. All of them are under wrath. Friend, you need to hear Paul's argument this morning. If you're somebody who wants to share the gospel, you need to understand Paul's argument. If you're someone that's exploring Christianity, you need to hear what Paul is trying to put forward about how to be saved and who's going to be judged this morning. I would even encourage you, whether you think you're like one of the goody-two-shoe kids or whether you think you're like, well, I'm one of the bad kids, so I don't usually listen, all need to hear the message this morning. Because what Paul is saying this morning is that everybody in this room, in their sin, is condemned and lost. No matter what sort of advantages they might think they have. He's going to put forward this, this main point, and he's going to argue it in five ways. Okay, he has five arguments. So if you looked at this passage, it, it, I'm looking at an ESV. It's got five paragraphs, and I think those are Paul's five arguments, but I'll put them up on the screen for you. So five arguments why, why all, especially this morning looking at... Uh, Uh, religious people, why all are um, under judgment for their sin. Five reasons for it, five arguments for it. Here we go. Here's argument number one. You ready? Argument number one is this. Judging, in quotes, judging is no escape from judgment. Judging is not an escape from judgment. That's verses one to five. What does Paul say? He says, therefore, now what's that therefore? It's therefore in light of all we just read about the unsaved world. Look how bad they are. Homosexuality, sin, celebrating all the sin inside. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Your judging has led to your own condemnation. And Paul says the exact same judgment they're under you're under. And he says it's because of your judging. And, and you might think, no, why? Why is that? I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are like, yes, Petrus, get him. Get him, Petrus, because I know so many judgmental Christians. And you know what the Bible told me is judge not lest you be judged. I don't know a lot of verses, but it's one of the ones I know. So you get those judgmental Christians, Petrus. Well, that's not exactly what Paul is doing here. This isn't a verse against all judging. Right? Later in, in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul says, hey, that dude that's, um, that's sleeping with his stepmom, get him out of the church. I've already judged him. You ought to already have judged him. Right? So not, not all judging is bad. There is actually good things to deem as good. There are bad things that you should consider as bad. In fact, notice what Paul says. Paul is not saying you guys are wrong for judging these people because even God judged these people. Look at verse 2. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. 
Those who have just given themselves over to sexual sin, rightfully judged by God. Paul says, we know that. That's a truth we know. So what's he, what's he talking about here? What does he mean that? Look again at verse 1. He says, you have no excuse, every one of you judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What Paul is saying is, don't you realize that by condemning those people, by looking at people who live that kind of lifestyle, by looking at people who walk in that way, by looking at them and going, guilty. Them, guilty. That as you strike that gavel, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you practice the same things. You walk in the same way they walk. So as you fold your arms and you look at the news today and you look at your friend's Instagram accounts just so you could go, oh, I can't believe they live like that. I can't believe they live like that. I can't believe what they're reporting on CNN. I can't believe how they report like that. How could somebody do that? You condemn yourself. Because Paul says you're just as wicked. You might, you might be thinking, here, what does he mean you do the same things? Right? Homosexuality, that wasn't something that was celebrated by the Jews. That, that's something that's mentioned there in chapter 1. Dishonorable passions. Women exchange natural relations without your contrary. Men likewise gave up the natural relations with women. That, that's not what the Jews do, and that's not what we do. No, no, but you missed the point. Just as bad as those things in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, are the things Paul mentions in verses 29 to 31. So you judge those people, but, but let me ask you, in your own life, do you see evil, covetousness, malice, the sort of sharp tongue that rips someone behind their back? Are you full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, prideful, boasting, inventing evil, disobedient to parents? Oh, friends, those things that the world does that you condemn them for, do you do the exact same things? What's Paul saying? He's not saying that you're wrong to call them guilty. You're right to call them guilty. You just need to put yourself in that category also. Now, you might think, what? I'm not like them. Now, I never march in a pride parade. I'm marching for, abor- for to get rid of abortion this Saturday. You know, I- I'm not like them. No, friend, but may- maybe you're... you're Sexual ethic is different than the world. But is your sexual sin exactly the same? I mean, is there any difference between the gossip at your high school and the gossip at your Bible study? If the Lord could read the text message thread the way that you talk about others, would there be any difference between your speech and the speech of the unsaved world? Any difference in like the pettiness of jealousy in relationships, the, the hatred, where you just kind of like say, ah, I've decided I don't like that person simply because they don't like me. Would that be any different than the unsaved world? But what Paul is saying is you're condemned. You do exactly what they do. There is no difference. Do you suppose 
that because you, uh, you judge them, take a look at verse three. Do you suppose that because you judge them, because you know that's wrong, that's wrong, that's bad, what we do at church is better. Do you suppose that gets you out of judgment? It doesn't. If a federal judge is going 100 miles down the freeway, speeding, does that get them out of their consequences simply because they know the law better than the officer that pulls them over? It doesn't. Uh, just because you're refing doesn't mean you don't have to play the rules of, uh, by the rules of the game. And what Paul is saying is you are likewise under condemnation. Being a judge doesn't put you above the law. And seeing the sin in others doesn't excuse the sin in your own heart. And so what Paul does here is he almost does, it's like David and Nathaniel, New Testament version. Some of you remember Nathan the prophet uh, goes to David. And this is after David has slept with Bathsheba. And uh, he says to him, hey, by the way, I know a guy who had a hundred sheep. And yet he saw a dude with one sheep and he took his sheep. And David goes, oh, that's terrible. That man should die. Who is he? What does Nathan do? He says, you're the man. And what happens here is Paul does the exact same thing to all of the goody two-shoes who go, yeah, look at Romans 1. The world is sure bad. Things were better when people watched more Fox News, right? Things were better back then. And what does he do? You're just as guilty and you've always been. Don't come to me like you're good because you help out an adventure club but live just like the world the rest of the week. You're just as bad as they are. Do, do you disdain the mercy of God, verse 4? Are you not someone who thinks that you need mercy? That, that somehow your religiosity and insight is going to get you away from the judgment of your sin? Oh no, friends, judging is no escape from judgment. The very fiery wrath of God falling on the world is falling on the person who thinks that they live above the world. The religious and the irreligious. And you might think, but why is that? Shouldn't there be some sort of like escape? That goes to Paul's second argument. Argument number two, God shows no partiality. Shouldn't that be the, I mean, shouldn't like the Jews be like, I don't know, treated a little differently? I mean, God, like <laughs> they're in the Old Testament a lot. Remember, they, they kind of seem to be main figures. You made some promises to them. Shouldn't that be a, an out for them? Well, no, you don't understand. Verse 6 says this. He will render to each one according to his works. Does God show favoritism? You know what it's like. You've seen what it's like when somebody plays favorites. When you have a coach that plays favorites. You have a teacher that plays favorites, a boss that shows favoritism to others, maybe parents. You can work on that in your own heart if you're the left out kid. You've got friends, right? You just know, man, everyone likes them more in the friend group than me. You, you've seen favoritism. You've seen bias. And you've seen people look the other way because they just like that person more. But that's not the way it is with God. God, God is not like that. God doesn't let anybody off the, the hook simply because I guess I'll give them a pass. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. That's almost a word-for-word -word quote from Proverbs 24, verse 12. 
And he goes on to explain, he goes, each one is going to be judged, not based on title, not based on religiosity, based on their works. Let me show you. He says, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. In the Greek there, it's almost like on the one hand, he gives eternal life to these people, those who by, by perseverance and well-doing that consistently do good, he will grant them eternal life. Verse 8, but on the other hand, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but they consistently obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Right? Look, here's how God's going to look at it. He's going to look at last name, religious history, what tribe they're in. No, no, he's going to do this. Did they seek good, eternal life? Did they seek evil, wrath and fury? He goes further down. Again, this is a blind test. He's just looking at their deeds. He says, verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and the Greek. So Jew or Greek, if you walk in wickedness, there will be, what's it say, tribulation and distress. But, verse 10, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. Okay, so again, regardless of religious background, you seek to do good, glory and honor and peace. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. So again, the argument, all are under judgment, all are condemned. And the reason why all are condemned, second argument there was because he didn't show partiality, right? So he will judge you, religious people, in spite of your religiosity for your sin. In the same way, he will judge those who are not as religious and walk in sin. That's Paul's second argument here. Now, if you're a Jew and you're thinking, this is Paul again, it's a fake argument. I don't think there's any Jews that are thinking this way in Rome, but he has this fake argument with a pretend Jew, maybe his old self. And this old, you know, pretend Jew in his mind has this thought, okay, Paul, but, but there are some difference between Jews and Greeks. Let me give you one advantage, the law. You're going to see the law a lot in the book of Romans, especially as we, we get later into the book. And, and the law, uh, we actually studied it in the book of Exodus, which is kind of nice if you were with us last uh, semester. So if you're a freshman, sorry, you were, you're left out on this. Sorry, freshman. But last semester, we looked at the law. We looked at that God gave instruction to his people. This is how they were supposed to live. And remember, the law was a huge blessing. Like God told them, you are my people. And because you're my special people, I'm going to give you the law. I'm going to give you instruction. I'm going to give you direction as to how you're supposed to live. And so perhaps if you're a Jew and you're at this point in the argument, you're thinking, I know, Paul, you're saying no partiality, but Jews have the law. Jews have the instruction of God. They have direction for how to live in this world. Surely that must mean something. And what Paul says is, they don't. And, and not just Paul, by the way. What, what God is saying through Paul is there's no advantage. Here's argument number three. Ready? Lawless Gentiles. We'll put that in quotes. Lawless Gentiles have the law. Lawless Gentiles do have the law. Does the law perhaps give the Jews some sort of benefit before God? Isn't it some sort of benefit that they know God and know what he wants? Tells him, no, look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned 
under the law will be judged by the law. So first he says, look, if you have the law, great. The law will be your standard of how you're judged. And if you don't have the law, great, then you're going to still be judged and perish even without it. In fact, he goes further in verse 13. He then says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. What Paul is saying is this, is there some difference between Jew and Gentile? The Jews have heard it. A lot of Gentiles haven't heard it. Is there a difference? Well, Paul says, no, there is no difference because it doesn't matter whether you heard it or not. Here's how God is going to judge you. He's not going to judge you, did you hear my instruction or did you not hear my instruction? He's going to judge you, did you do what I've commanded you to do or did you reject it? Did you obey? Who cares if you heard it? Did you obey or not? So there's no advantage to having this religious information. And then he goes on to say something really interesting. He says, actually, though, the Gentiles do have it. They actually do have the law, but they don't have it written down. He says they have it on their hearts. If you've grown up at Grace Church, you, you've heard about man's sinfulness. It's not a doctrine we shy away from. You've heard that man, we've used the phrase before, totally depraved. That man loves sin, he's under sin. We'll talk about Romans 3, the, the nature of sin next week. And, and you've probably thought to yourself at one point, okay, I get it, man is totally sinful. But then like, why are some of my unsaved neighbors nice? How many of you ever thought that? Like, man is sinful, but like, why are some of my unsaved friends nice? You've thought this before, right? Like, like why that one time when my family, when our car broke down on the side of the road, why did that guy get out of the car and help us change the tire? He doesn't go to church. He doesn't, he didn't seem like he was doing it like for money. He didn't post it on Instagram to boast or anything, right? Like, why are some people nice? Like, uh, like why are people out there doing charity work? Why are people doing kind things? I'm not, maybe you're one of those like, well, they're, all, they're all up to no good with nefarious purposes. No, there's like, there's like decent people who seem to be doing good things. Why do the, the Mormons have bad thinking on Jesus yet seem to be really nice? Why in youth group are sometimes the unsaved kids nicer to one another than the saved kids? Why, why does that happen? If man is totally lost, then why does a man just like kill everyone they want, steal everything they want, what is, what is going on there? And the reason why that doesn't happen is Paul says it's because the law for the unsaved person, the instructions of how to live, is written on their heart. It's written on their heart. So take a look at verse 14. It says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires, that they show the kind of kindness and generosity and obedience that would be required. You see, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Because they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. That they know it. There's a reason why no society in the world straight up says, you're good to kill whoever you want. Right? Like that is, and there's murder, and there's murder with abortion, and there, there's all sorts of evil that happens. But no society has openly embraced murder without limitation. Right? No society has openly embraced theft without limitation. Because they know, like, well, that's wrong. You're not supposed to do that. Why is that? Well, because as someone who's created in the image of God, 
It's on their heart. They know they're not supposed to walk like that. They know in their conscience that there is right and wrong. There's no society that's openly just said, divorce is great, uh, sleep with whoever you want all the time, uh, go for it, right? Our society goes there, but it's still wrong to cheat on someone in the United States. Why? Because the conscience to some degree is there and the law is still written on their heart. By the way, that is a reason for condemning those who maybe you've never gone to church. You might go, man, how could God condemn people who've never heard the truth? What Paul's saying here is, no, no, the truth's on their hearts. And what they do in verse 15, it says, while their conscience bears witness, day and night, their, their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them, right? The unsaved person who's never heard knows by their conscience, I shouldn't be doing that, and either changes according to conscience, or by their conscience goes, ah, it's okay, I did this, even though I know I shouldn't. And one day it says that they will be judged according to their secret thoughts uh, before the Lord, that God will judge them based on the law that's written on their heart. So this is an out for them. They are judged. The irreligious person is judged as well. But what we see here for what Paul is saying is there's no advantage to knowing the law or not knowing the law, right? You go, well, you know, I know the Bible, I know the truth. Well, the unsaved people know it in their hearts too. That doesn't give you any sort of advantage before God. It condemns them, but it doesn't give you any sort of up. So again, Paul's main point, all are equally condemned all are equally under judgment for rebellion, religious or irreligious. Specifically, he's looking at the Jews as opposed to the Gentiles. Religious versus irreligious. Which takes him into his fourth argument. It's this. Knowing the law is no excuse for breaking the law. Knowing the law is no excuse for breaking the law. Look at verse 17. This is, I think this is the meat of his argument now. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. Okay, now now here's where Paul is going to consider for a moment. Let's think about the advantages the Jews have. The Jewish people know the one true God. They know the law that God has given. They've they've received a, a Bible. They've got instruction from God and how to live and how to live in this world. And look, he, he lays it on thick here. He talks about the, the special position Jews have. He says, look, you know, verse 18, his will. You approve of what is excellent. You are instructed from the law. If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment and knowledge of truth. This is not to say there is no benefit of religious heritage. Look, knowing truth from God is hugely important. It it is light. It is truth in a world of error. It is reality in in a world of make-believe. It is direction in a world of confusion. It is good to know your Bible. It is good to know truth. But knowing Truth does not excuse the ways that you sin. It in no way, in no way will excuse you. And look, I understand I'm, I'm talking to a room of people 
who know a lot more than the average youth group. That you guys know your Bible and know where to find the books in the Bible. All of you bring a Bible on Sunday morning. Uh, You can answer Bible trivia all day long. Get all the Jolly Ranchers and badges that you want. Uh, you, You know that Mormonism is false. You know that you're not supposed to support BLM. You know God's view on marriage. You you know the way the world's supposed to work. You know all of these things. But it doesn't mean anything. It, It doesn't add. It gives you no advantage, no boost in your standing before God. Why? Because you walk in sin just the same way the unbelieving world does. It doesn't help you at all. Verse 21 Paul writes, you then who teach others, right? You then who would uh, lecture the world on the the way that they're dealing with this pandemic. You you then who is ready to to go to the mat when it comes to online theological debates. You then who are ready to go toe-to-toe with the Mormons on your school. You then who are ready to talk the gospel, ready? You then who teach others. Do you not teach yourself? He says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Do you walk in in sin just the way the world does? When you say do not steal, do not murder, and yet do you find yourself stealing, deceiving, hating? Do you, as I mentioned earlier, find that your, your mouth is just as ripe with gossip and hatred as, as your friends uh, back at school? Then, friend, Paul says, you're condemned. Stop acting like a sermon from Petrus or a quiet time from, with the family for bedtime makes up for your sin when you sin just like the world. It doesn't. There's no secondhand cleansing because of those who are spiritual around you. You say, well, marriage is between a man and a woman. That's great that you believe that. It doesn't matter if you look at all the same stuff online or think the same way about the opposite sex as the world does. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Paul is saying you're condemned. And you need to stop hiding behind the fact that your Bible's got bookmarks or you have adventure club books in the past that that for some reason God's going to go, well, you're bad but not as bad. Come on in. He's saying you're lost. You're just as lost as they are. You're just as much under the wrath of God as they are too. Now again, Paul here says, do you sin in those ways? You might think, well, I don't steal and I don't commit adultery and I certainly don't rob temples. I've driven by, I've seen Coldwater and Roscoe, that temple, never once thought of stealing there. What, 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 what is Paul saying? He's not necessarily saying they, they sin in all the exact same ways. But what he's saying, what he's arguing, is that your pattern, Jews, is to preach against the very sins that you disobey. That's your pattern, right? Verse 23, here's what he goes. You boast in the law, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. So quote scripture all you want, that doesn't make up for it if you don't obey it. Doesn't do anything. You are just as lost. And by the way, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Even the Gentiles know you don't keep the law that you preach at others. And so you're just as lost as they are. Just as guilty. 
Student, I would ask you just personally this morning, as I was praying about this sermon, and I was thinking about it for my own heart and thinking about it for you, I wonder if some of you think that your sin is okay because you know how to find where it's addressed in the Bible. That, that you think your sin is somehow okay because reading the Bible has made up for obeying the Bible. That you've excused some of your rebellion because the attributes of God that you have memorized have given you a hall pass to not obey the commands of God that you're ignoring. I wonder that because you've shown up when church is essential on Sunday, that obedience isn't nearly as essential Monday through Saturday. And that you've made up all sorts of ways to be your own savior and to scrub the stain of your sin away through your knowledge and through your, you know, through your repetition, your fastidiousness, and you've excused disobedience in your life. Paul writes this to say, stop fooling yourself. A few giggles on a Sunday and some sermon notes filled out. Don't make up for your sin. God still sees it. He shows no partiality. And he doesn't shrug and laugh quite like your lukewarm friends do. He sees your sin as well. He sees our sin. And perhaps we've gotten in the habit of excusing our sin simply because we know that we ought to call it sin. Paul is saying that does not work. And if that, that's you, you're guilty. And that judgment that we read about last week is the same judgment that's coming for you in all your religiosity. Which leads Paul to his fifth argument. He anticipates something here. Argument number five, we'll, call, we'll say this, is heritage and tradition will not save you. Heritage and tradition will not save you. Now, Paul brings up circumcision, as many of us tend to do randomly. And what he does here is he anticipates an argument. He says, okay, that's great. Jews, we have the law. That doesn't work. But, but Paul, we have a lot more than the law, right? We have heritage. We have tradition. We're the people of God that, that have been set apart as the people of God for so long. So, so certainly that must count for something. We, we have some sort of credit for being Jewish, right? We have some sort of credit for... Uh, we're not just smart. We've got heritage and holidays, and I'm a Jew, like my dad was a Jew, like his dad was a Jew, like his dad was a Jew. There's got to be something for that. And he talks about, uh, here he's talking about covenants. He's talking about circumcision. Uh, now, if you don't know what circumcision is, uh, I'll just, there you go. It's, it's the removal of the foreskin on the male uh, organ. Uh, you could talk with your parents about that if you got questions. Do not Google it. I promise you that. That will not sit well before lunch. But what it was is a way of marking Jews for them to say, we are different than the world. We belong to God. And so it was part of their whole heritage. That you're circumcised on the eighth day, and you celebrate all the holidays throughout the calendar year. And so in one sense, they're like, but, but we are set apart from the world. We are different, and therefore we should be treated differently. Here's what Paul says, verse 25. He says, for circumcision indeed is a value, ready? If you obey. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. What does that mean? Now help me out here. 
Paul is, is not talking anatomy here. Here's what he's talking about. He's saying your external work, symbolism, religious rites and traditions are only as good as you actually obey. So you can, um, yeah, circumcision here, it's something that uh, it's, it's practiced in our culture. It's, it's healthier. It's, it's to protect people, right? Uh, but what would be the equivalent of that? Well, you might say, well, I've, I've learned the verses. Uh, my, my parents did parent dedication. Uh, I've, I've gone through baptism. Um, I went to camp. I, I served in Servants for Christ. I did all these things. Look at these things that Grace Church kids do. I've got a JMAC study Bible that I got when I was four, right? I've got all of these things. And because of, don't those things count for something? And Paul says they absolutely do if you actually obey. But if you don't, it's, it's all bunk. None of it counts for anything. None of it means anything anything if you don't you could quote me verses to defend the trinity all day long it doesn't matter if you don't obey he advances this argument look he says if a man's not circumcised but he keeps the law before god won't he be considered as if he did the tradition in other words like it's it's about the obedience Uh, Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the law and have circumcision but break the law. And here's Paul's point here. Ready? He says, For one is a Jew, for sorry, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, uh, is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. A real Christian is a Christian from the inside out. They want to obey. By a, the Spirit, they have a changed heart that pursues obedience. But there is a fake kind of religion that is merely external. And by external, merely does these little half-hearted homages to the Lord. I read a verse. I always pray when my small group leader asks if I could, if I want to pray. But there's no real obedience, friend. The person who walks in sin like that is not saved. Paul is saying they are condemned. They are lost. It is not a real faith. Their claim to Christianity. Is false. Why? Because they don't obey that which they teach. And so the idea that the wrath of God will not fall on me because I'm a good person who has memorized God's word, who quotes God's law, who has all these spiritual things, they do nothing for you. You're lost in your sin. Your sin has undone all of that. In fact, we're not even done yet. We'll dive more into this next week. Because you might be thinking, okay, well, my sin has undone it. I'm, I'm lost. That the wrath of God, the, the God who sees all my hypocrisy, uh, His wrath will fall on me unless I do better. And next week is what you're going to see. 
is you can't do better. It's not just sin has a presence in your life for the unbeliever. Sin has dominion in your life. But that's next week. Here's the takeaway this morning. What is Paul trying to do? Is he just trying to make us all feel guilty about our sin? I think we should feel worse about our sin. I think we should actually feel the sinfulness of sin. I think one of the number one uh, examples, at least I've seen in my ministry life, of students who walk away from the faith is they never really thought sin was all that sinful. But what this is supposed to do is not to point you inside, do better, try harder. It's supposed to make you think then, how can I be made right with God? How do I have any hope? How can I have any hope for, for, how does Paul describe it? For glory and honor and peace and life. That answer is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who knows our sin. Jesus Christ who knows your sin. Jesus Christ who came and died for sinners. So that if we trust in him, if we cry out to him as a hopeless sinner who knows the guilt that we're under and knows the wrath that we can deserve, that we deserve, then all of our sin and guilt is taken away. And that righteousness, that righteousness that we preach but do not live, the righteous life that he lived is given to us. So friend, this morning, though we're not there yet in Romans, we're here right now on October 3rd in the basement. You need Christ to save you. And I'm talking to people who maybe are, are here only because their parents are making them. They don't want to. They like to listen to the sermon. Christ can save you. Christ can rescue you from your sin. You need him to save you. And I'm talking to people who listen every week and take notes. Are you saved because you're good? Or are you saved because Jesus saved you? This morning, choose the second option. Come to Christ not as a partner or a teammate or even an ally for him. Come to Christ as a sinner who needs to be rescued. Because that's the only way that you could be saved. And Christ is a Savior who always forgives those who come to him. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for speaking to us so clearly. Uh, we cannot save ourselves. Uh, Lord, we, we cannot think that our sin is excused because of anything in us, any sort of religiosity, any sort of good things that we've done. Our only hope is to fully trust in you. And, and we can trust in you truly and truthfully. We can know that we're saved. We placed our faith in you, Lord. So Lord, thank you uh, that for those of us who have come to Christ, that we are forgiven. And that our sin is gone and separated as far as the east is from the west. And I pray, Lord, that you would draw sinners this morning, especially those who think they're saved and they're not. That they would see that Christ offers a better righteousness than their own. Thank you, Lord. We praise you as the God who has ended our sin through Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.